Welcome to Nature Bets Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This March 2nd, 2021 edition, episode 148 of Nature Bets Last, comes to you live from Rakino Island in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and also from Central Florida in the United States. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm again joined today by my regular host, Professor Guy McPherson, and also by sometime co-host, Pauline Schneider. Today's show includes conversation with Mimi Riley. Guy, will you do the honors, please? Thank you, Kevin. Today we are joined by longtime college educator Mimi Riley. Mimi preceded her illustrious career in higher education by dropping out of high school in the ninth grade. There were more interesting things happening in the streets than in high school during the early 1970s. Only a few years later, Mimi graduated from the University of California at Berkeley with a degree in sociology. A master's degree in the same subject followed four years later, and she then qualified for a doctorate degree in sociology in 1998. Mimi has been a tenured sociology instructor at Butte Community College for 20 years. She created Butte's multidisciplinary certificate in sustainability studies in 2007. A recent student of Mimi's characterized her as a Pez dispenser of red pills. Those of us familiar with the 1999 film The Matrix know the red pills represent reality. Consistent with the reference by Mimi's student, she was among the first faculty members to host me on campus after I reached the conclusion that our species hovers on the brink of extinction. Our conversation today will focus on the roles of contemporary educators and the strategies by which we can reach people. Mimi, welcome to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Thank you, Guy. We will be taking your toll-free calls today. Please call us with your questions and comments after we spend a bit of time with our guest. We are most easily reached with a toll-free telephone call to 888-874-4888. Kevin, will you start us off? I will indeed. Welcome to the show, Mimi. I'd like Thank to you, Kevin. know how you see young people navigating the unfolding chaos whilst watching a near lack of le- a near total lack of leadership from the political elites and to a large degree to their elders. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, what I see in in the population that I teach, which is ranges from high school to, you know, seventy year old people, um, you know, generally working class people, because I chose to teach at a community college, is that they are increasingly um, uninformed and misinformed and there's so much going on in our culture today that they don't know who to believe or where to turn anymore and so this you know just ties in with the immense polarization that we have in our society and just want to mention the um, erosion of any sort of social consensus on reality so you know, years or decades ago, uh, it used to be that science was upheld as, you know, discovering truth. And when scientists would put out the truths that they would find, the emergent truths they would find, that that everyone in society pretty much agreed upon that. They respected science. And now, and, and, and from that point, you could be, you know, right or left or up or down, and you could totally disagree on what to do about that particular phenomenon. Um, and that's where, you know, debate comes in. Like, how, what kind of policy do we create? What do we, you know? But, but anymore, there is no social consensus on reality because science has been polarized. Science has been um, – Completely, not completely, but it's been being legitimated, delegitimated more and more. And so when young people say, well, what is the truth and what is not the truth? It's it's becoming more difficult for me to say, you know, what is the truth and what is not the truth? Because it, that is seen as a political viewpoint of my own pol- political views, right? So it's more and more difficult for me to say, okay, here's the scientific data. Here's, here's the emergent truth. How do we feel about this? What can we do about it? Because when I state that, um, a lot of people are suspect. They're like, well, where are you getting that? And that must be your own opinion. And so it's very disheartening for me as an educator right now, I have to say, um, to try to get through to people. I mean, there are several you know, bright students that, that understand, but in order to connect the dots these days, it's becoming increasingly difficult for students. You know, maybe that's completely consistent with what I see as well. We have become a culture of authority figures, which means opinions, rather than a culture of evidence. It wasn't that long ago, Carl Sagan was a respected science educator in this country. And now I doubt you could get him to go on television if there was a television station that would have him. So that, you know, that brings to me, what is the role of educators? And I think this is the question that we can address today because we have educators here. I was at a research one institution. You're in higher education. Pauline is qualified with a master of arts degree in teaching Kevin has been a social media warrior for a long time, getting out the information, and we're using a variety of platforms and a variety of means to get that information out. Mm -hmm. But 
My question for you backtracks a few years. In light of ready access to information via the internet, the standard approach of transferring data from the instructor's brain into the student's brains seems a little dated. So how do you deal with that issue in your classrooms? How do you, how do you get people to develop critical thinking skills in light of the everything is just two clicks away phenomenon? Yeah, well, I, you know, I try to present as much scientific evidence as I possibly can, and then I put that out for discussion. And, um, you know, that's what I've been doing my, my entire career. And it's just, as I said, it's becoming more and more difficult. So I, um, you know, I'm, I'm a critical thinker. I'm a sociologist. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge, you know, critic of society. That was my training and I look at society from a you know historical standpoint as well as a sort of a more spatial standpoint about the changes in institutions and culture and all of that sort of thing. And so I try to I try to provide a historical context um, for what's going on now. The slide into you know if you want to call it fascism or authoritarianism or um, you know, whatever it is, I mean, the, the one of the main tools or tactics, tactics that's used, been used throughout history is confusing the people and misinforming the people and, um, you know, the divide and conquer and all that sort of strategy and the, the, the um, profusion of fear, right? And, and that's exactly what we're living in right now. That's exactly the kind of society we're living in. Everyone's afraid, and they're so afraid they're, they're being brought to their knees. So I know I didn't really ask, answer your question, but um, I just tell the truth. I just tell the truth, and I read every single day. I read um, scientific evidence. I read sociological studies. I read all sorts of things. And I just bring that into the classroom and allow them to, um, to, you know, to debate amongst themselves. Even though we're online, they still have discussions. And, you know, it, it's all over the place. I've never seen anything like this in my, you know, 35 years in higher education and teaching TA in higher education. And so you know, I'm going to retire next year because I just can't, it's just not working <laughs> the way that it used to. And I'm not saying giving up, I'm going to just find a different kind of a venue because, um, you know, I have a whole bullet list of what I think is problematic in higher education right now. The, there are trends that are happening right now and they're happening rapidly and they are trends that are, um, really not delegitimating, but they're really problematic for an institution of higher education in actually educating people and informing people. And I know that's where sort of where you left off with Paul Ehrlich last time. And I kind of wanted to pick up on that point too. Yeah. In fact, among the last things Paul said was, that all we have left is education. It, we're too far down the road into the mass extinction event to mm -hmm. preserve habitat for our own species. So what we have left to us is educating people. And 
that's where I think this conversation is critically important at this time, because here we have four longtime educators, albeit taking different approaches. Now, Mimi, you provided an answer to my question when I was in your classrooms. You hosted me in your classrooms and also for public presentations. And in your classrooms, I saw you prodding and poking and asking questions and not doing the standard approach of feeding information that then you expected to be fed back to you. So what are you doing? What were you doing in those classrooms? Why were you using that approach? What, what, what's the point of asking all those seemingly silly questions that the students don't know the answers to anyway? Well, because, you know, I, I guess my, my method is really very Socratic in that I feel like um, a lot of them know deep down inside that there's something very wrong, and a lot of them have, you know, opinions about that. And so I ask very provocative questions um, of my students because I want to pull out of them where they're at one because I would like to know and two because I think that you know listening to them and and making their thoughts and feelings valid is a really good way to gain trust in the classroom and to create um, you know lively debate in the classroom which is crucial you know, which 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 is so difficult right now, and what's happening in our you know our political debate, for example, example cultural debate, and so um, yeah, I'm a I'm a pro provoker. I pro I, you know I provoke them to pull pull out the answers, and then you know if it's something that obviously you know I can direct that conversation, but not in a way where I say, well, you're wrong. It's not like that, but in a, in a way that you know still respects their feelings and their opinion and their knowledge about certain things, but that, that just really enhances that and ties that together maybe with something someone else was saying or, you know, that sort of thing. Well, that's getting, you know, I can't really do that anymore, Guy, because I'm, I'm teaching completely online, so I don't even see my students. And, um, you know, this has been a huge period of grief for me. Um, toward the end of my career, not being in the classroom and doing those kinds of things. So I, what I'm getting right now is that students are just going through the motion to get the, 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 the grades, to get the degree, to move on, to do the, you know, this online teaching is, uh, anyway, there's just huge problems with it. And, and you know, if I, if I may, I'd love to go through this short list of what I, why I think that higher education or even, I don't know, K through 12 has always been problematic, but higher education is becoming more problematic, you know, and, and the first one is that higher education institutions are, are kind of gutting the social sciences. So history, you know, our own philosophy program is on the block right now. This is the first, the first discipline ever and it's on the block. They're thinking of cutting it out. They killed my sustainability program. Um, they're they're just cutting out, you know, what they consider the fat. And you know, that's that's a very sad day because if you're just training people in technical skills and 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 very specialized areas, they're not going to have a broad knowledge of history and and of power 
and of how that changes or how that re- is reproduced, you know, from generation to generation or, you know, the corporate, you know, the power elite structure. And so they don't, they don't, they're not going to get that. This, this stuff is getting cut every single semester. And then the next one is the lack of what I call civic literacy. So for the last 20 years, I've been asking my students, you know, how many of you take a course in civics in high school? And, you know, it used to be that quite a few of them did. And over the years, it's maybe one, you know. And when I ask them what it means to be a citizen or what it means to be a consumer, they're just look at me like deer in the headlights. And then when I ask them what the Constitution does or what it is and what it provides for us, they're just completely blank stares. They have no idea. And that that's terrifying to me. Um, I, you know, the, the failing of corporate media to truly inform them, that that's another whole huge topic. The, the chilling of free speech for the skeptics like me who speak out. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've just been watching recently how RFK Jr. has been silenced on social media. Um, Dr. Zach Bush, who I follow, who talks about our, building our immune systems, he's now being defamed. Uh, Jim Hightower the other day, um, they would not let him post some things that had to do with corporations and media. Um, and, you know, and so I'm watching this happening every day. Oh, they've silenced him. Oh, they're defaming him. Oh, they're, you know, so any voice in society that has a different take, they're being silenced by, you know, private corporations like Facebook or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so students are getting the idea through culture and their peers and family or, or whoever around them that it's unpatriotic to question, right? And so when I question things, it's kind of like I can, I, over the Internet, I can feel a hush, you know. Um, it's kind of like what happened after 9-11. You're either with the terrorists or you're, or you're not, you know, you're with us. And this culture of fear, you know, like I said, it creates silence. And there's also a chilling of speech in higher education now that we're online. So normally I would go into a classroom and I would deliver a lecture and I would create a, a huge discussion about that. And now I have to tape my lectures on my computer, and then I have to send them off to the California Community College uh, District for closed captioning. And those lectures are now being stored in some black box somewhere. You know, that terrifies me. That's surveillance. That's part of the surveillance mode that's coming in. And um, I don't like that. And, you know, then there's the intimidation of what I see, the intimidation of junior faculty. So I have, you know, several friends who are in their late 30s who have just become tenured, and they're scared to death because our our administrators are becoming punitive. They're becoming, you know, well, we'll cut this and we'll cut that and we'll make your life miserable for you. So these younger faculty come to me and, and I say, look, you have a right to do X, Y, and Z. You're an academic, you're tenured. And they're, they say, what? Really? I can't, what? I can do that? They're, they're terrified. So, and then you have, you know, finally you have the, um, well, a couple of things. The older faculty who have the institutional memory 
of what academic freedom is about, they're dying and they're retiring in droves right now. Um, so, you know, we're going to turn this over to, just like everything else, every institution in our society, we're going to turn it over to, you know, younger people. I'm 61, and we're going to turn it over to younger people who don't really have a clue what their rights are, how much power they have, how um, how important it is to hold on to the honor and the respect that they deserve. They're not respected. I, I see it every day. So, you know, that's my that's my kind of my my laundry list of why edu- higher education is failing miserably. And we could talk about the arts and humanities in a minute. <laughs> that's you you started by pointing out grief, and I think Kevin has a question about grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do, and it, it effectively applies to all three of you, but I'd like um, Mimi and Pauline possibly to respond first, and that is how do we manage our grief and that of our youth as we're going forward? You know, we're all grieving. If you're not grieving, you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems that I have for the youth is that I've had a long, fortunate life and I can manage my grief through my gratitude for my life. But young people had all this expectation in front of them, and that expectation was either has been snuffed out or is in the process of it. How on earth do we manage this tsunami of grief? Could you go uh, Mimi first and then Pauline, please? Oh, well, um, you know, I think they're carrying a lot of grief that they don't, they can't identify. And that's, you know, that's coming out in, in anxiety and depression and suicides, we've seen all these rates go up. Um, and they don't really know they're in grief. They, they know, you know, you look out on the streets and you see some of these young people who are really courageous who go out and fight for climate justice and all of these other things, Black Lives Matter. But they don't really understand that they're in grief because this is really all they've known. So it's kind of the norm for them. That's a yeah, good point. PTSD, some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, sorry, Pauline, I interrupted. Please go on. No, I, I was just agreeing. I was saying that's a really good point, that that's the situation that they they were born into, a situation not of their making, where mm-hmm. it's been difficult and it's been traumatic from day one. These kids today have had 9-11 situations from when they were toddlers. It has been nonstop for them. They have not known, you know, the, the, like, I mean, when we were younger, granted there were some difficult times, but it was nothing like this. I mean, they were, it's in their schools. They're not safe in their own schools. Columbine was probably, a huge wake-up call for us all, and you. I think you're absolutely right, Mimi. And I think they. I, I think they don't know that the anger and the frustration they're feeling is actually grief. And you know, when Guy and I took that workshop at the Grief Recovery Institute, we learned that grief is basically wanting a different past. And these young people definitely want a different past, a different mm-hmm. present, 
and a different future, and they are not getting it. And we don't even talk about grief in this culture. That's one of the taboo items, grief and grieving and death, dying and bodily function. We just don't talk about any of those things. So, of course, we don't, as individuals, know how to deal with them. I didn't even know what grief was for the first 50-some years of my life. I had no idea. I had been in grief, but I couldn't identify what it was. Mimi, tell us more. Yeah, I just read, I just read an article this morning um, about it was kind of um, a little bit critical of this new age um kind of thinking like just think on the bright side count your blessings everything you know the more you think good thoughts the more they're going to manifest and what their criticism was was that hey you know when people are in grief and they just shut that part off you know you have a split there right and you shut that part off you repress it into what you know Jung called the shadow right and it's still there festering around and what you need to do to 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 come to you know go through the five stages of, of grief, right? What what you need to do is you need to actually go down there in there and extricate that grief and put it on the table and look at it, you know. Hopefully, maybe with somebody who's really well skilled at helping you deal with your grief, so that you can get to the point of acceptance, and then you're you know you can integrate that back into your into your life, but. As a society, you're right. We don't talk about grief and, and death. And these are just very, you know, life is not a bowl of cherries. I mean, we're all going to grieve things throughout our lives. And if, if we're living in a culture that that says that's bad or weak and we, you don't know how to deal with it, then these young people who have it in mass are yeah. – are you know going to be a generation that's carrying around a huge shadow, a big ball and chain around them? And they, the thing is, they don't know why. They don't know why because they're being lied to. Because there's too many uh, ideas floating around that they can't, they can't really trust anybody to really tell them, you know, what is the truth. So they can't even grapple with their grief because they, they don't even know what's real and true and not real and true in my right. view right so you mentioned something in your first response to you you mentioned something about truth tellers in higher education and what's going on with those truth tellers and the the disparity the gap between those older people who are t who are the truth tellers who are digging into the evidence and the younger people who are terrified to do so. Can you tell us more about that? What What is happening in higher education, at least from your perspective, from your institution, that is mm -hmm. causing the demise of the truth tellers? Yeah, well, you know, in the community college system, we don't have, you know, huge endowments coming from places. So we're pretty much at the mercy of, you know, state and, you know, funding for and that is measured by how many full-time students we have. And our, our student population has dropped almost in half since COVID. So, the, you know, the college over the last four or five years has hired administrators who are extremely punitive and disrespectful of faculty. And, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really 
I mean, it is not the academia that I was trained in at all, but yet I retain that sense of, look, I earned this right, and you actually work for me, and you should be treating me with a lot more respect um, so that I can do my job because you're here to support us. But the way that it's been going, because they're so desperate for money, and that's why they're cutting all these what they think are extraneous programs like sustainability studies or peace and global studies gone. They're just gone. I mean, you know, it took me, you know, years to put that together. And and a colleague of mine put together a peace and global studies program. They were both extremely popular, but apparently not popular enough. So they went on the chopping block. And, and, and I think it's, it's, I, I think it really boils down to higher education, at least at my level that I'm teaching at right now, is is a corporate machine it, it has it has become that because it has to become that because it can't keep its doors open unless it cuts quote the fat and you know it's it's continuously searching for for money and so if that means intimidating people if that means um you know not granting tenure to a lot of people who haven't been granted tenure. And there's a lot of lawsuits going on at my school about that. Um, You know, to, it's just, I mean, like I said, they're, 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 they're talking about cutting our philosophy program. That just blows my mind. It's like, what, like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, social science, sociology. So when I, I'm the only full-time sociologist and I have a few um, adjunct, but when I retire next year, they're not going to replace me. They haven't replaced our full-time anthropologist, and she's been gone for three or four years. Um, and there's other, some other social science disciplines like that, political science. Um, they're just not replacing them because, well, full-time tenured faculty earn a lot more money than you know your associate faculty who you can exploit. So that that's where it's going. I mean, I'm you know I'm 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 a conflict theorist you know, at heart. And so I just see this um, antagonism between these sorts of institutions that now have to focus all of their attention on making money and they're going to cut corners however they can. And in doing so, they're hiring people on part-time basis who of course can be fired at will, you know, pretty much. And, um, they're not respecting us tenured faculty, and I think you know if they had their druthers, they would they would eliminate all of us tenured faculty, and they would you know save a lot of money on our salaries, and then they would just hire all part time people. I, honestly, you know that's because that's the way capitalism works. It continually cuts costs in order to you know make make profit or have more money. In our case, they're not making profit, but that's what I see. That's my analysis anyway. No, I th- I think you have things turned around there, Mimi. You're you're saying that peace and global studies and sustainability, peace globally and sustainability are important compared to money. I think you're confused about this whole arrangement. <laughs> With that, Pauline has a question for you. <laughs> yeah, I, it's uh, it, it's really disheartening to hear. You know that this is what. This is what the state of our community colleges are are in, and our universities as well. Um, I have I have my bachelor's in sociology and anthropology, so 
if mm -hmm. uh, I can't imagine, you know, not having, you know, the resident anthropologist and sociologist on campus to go and pick their brain and, you know, <laughs> just hang out mm -hmm. with them and, and get some wisdom from them. And it's just really, it's, uh, it's stunning. So here's, here's the question. The students today who come to you and are confused, disinformed, uninformed, brokenhearted, angry, depressed, <laughs> grieving, do you, they... The lucky ones. She the, means the lucky ones. They're alive. <laughs> they're still alive. <laughs> the thing is, you know, one of the things that we, you know, that always brought us some hope and I know that's a that's a bad word in this in this universe here. <laughs> but it was that the majority of the citizenry in this country, which tends to be which or has a reputation of being very authoritarian and conservative, but the majority mm -hmm. in the seventy percent percentile are very supportive of progressive agendas education, mm -hmm. the arts, equality, mm -hmm. uh, justice. Um, are these things that the students, do they know that that's actually the case? Or are they um, operating? Yeah, you know, where I, mean, they I don't, talk about where There's no hope. No, I mean, I, I do mention a lot of that. And I say, you know, really what's happening with a lot of people in this polarized society is that, um, you know, and mostly people who are not educated, um, who like to follow along or latch on to some kind of a, you know, whatever movement, is that they're really voting against their own self-interest. And um, I, t I teach about the power elite, and, you know, probably you're familiar with C.R. Wright Mills. And, you know, I say they're, the you know, another historic tactic is conquer and divide. So, Let's get us all mm -hmm. to not like each other and, you know, not trust each other instead of looking up and seeing, oh, wow, what are those people doing up there? Why why was there just a $1.3 trillion profit for people like Bezos and, you know, Zuckerberg and, you know, who, who are the rest of them are, Bill Gates? $1.3 trillion profit since covid those people have made. And, you know, I would point out to my students, as I think I just did in a lecture the other day, that that money should be going to the people. That money should be going to health care. That money should be going to really, truly create a national plan about this COVID, which has just been, you know, it's been ridiculous without leadership. And, you know, a lot of lives could have been saved. And I just think that these people who are profiting off of the money, you know, people, yeah, they say, oh, I'm outraged about that. But, you know, what are people really doing? I mean, they're just, people are, there's so many layers to this power structure, you know, culturally, institutionally, and it takes a lifetime of, of learning and doing this every day, as I do as a sociologist, to really be able to connect the dots and develop, you know, the sociological imagination where you can really see how everything is working together. But I think that for the average person, like my students, there may be one or two that I get a semester 
that do a lot of their own research because they're truly interested in wanting to know what the heck is going on. But for the rest of them, you know, I just think to myself, well, they're taking this class, you know, this one class, it's gen ed class, and well, they're all gen ed, but, you know, and they're just ticking off a gen ed requirement and they're, you know, they're going to move on. They're not, you know, going to connect the dots. And I remember I started at a community college and I transferred to Berkeley and my, my whole thing was, and I was a single mom at the time. And I, my whole thing was not about, I have to do something for a career to get a job. My whole thing was about what happened to those people of the 1960s? Because I was, you know, I was born in 59. So I was really influenced by those people. And by the way, when I dropped out of high school in ninth grade, I was living in downtown Berkeley. So, um, I, you know, they were bigger fish to fry, and I really wanted to understand that. And then, you know, 11 years later, I'm 26 years old, I have a son, and I'm like, what happened? Where'd they go? You know, it was Reagan. And and I just started this quest, this 13-year quest in higher education to be able to connect the dots so that I would know that story well before I started singing, you know, to quote Dylan. And and that was my mission. And I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with this degree. And then, you know, I come, got this download when I got out of Berkeley and it was like, well, you're going to teach because now you've figured it out. You can't keep this information to yourself. You're going to take it back to the working class. So I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of meandering a little bit, but, but I, what I do want to say is the inability to connect the dots is coming from, you know, the culture, um, the corporate owned media and also in higher education from the fact that the, the, the disciplines are completely siloed, right? They're completely disparate. They're completely not connected. So that's why I created my interdisciplinary program in sustainability studies. It was sociology, economics, philosophy, psychology, um, biology, you know, there were there were faculty there that were totally excited to get on board to be part of this, and we created our own classes mid-semester, and everyone was just like on it. And that was a that was a a, a, a program where the students were able to totally connect the dots. But when you just have these siloed disciplines, where oh, I'm going to major in computer science, and that's pretty much all you do then you're never going to connect the dots. And what a great place to have people. What another great tactic, right? Yeah. That grand larceny that you talked about of the billionaires um, making obscene profits while everything Mm -hmm. is crumbling around them, that's um, reflective of me of the end of all the other civilizations that had fiat currencies. This is exactly what happened extraordinary wealth disparity the the ruling class is being completely disconnected from the reality for the people on the streets next thing they all had a look of surprise on their face and they seen people running towards them with pitchforks do you have a pitchfork is that what you're saying are you recommending the sale did you go into the pitchfork business (laughs) Mimi I have a question for you you earlier you mentioned broad knowledge broad knowledge as if it was a good thing. And what's yeah. what's the point? This is, this is the general overall question that has been plaguing me pretty much my entire adult life. What's the point of a whole holistic life? Why would we do it, that? 
to okay, herself. Because it creates a uh, because it creates a holistic mind and a holistic person who understands how you know as a sociologist for me it's important to to be able to understand culture and cultural trends and what's being filled into our consciousness by media messages over and over you know to, to in order to be more you have to have more and you know all that kind of stuff and and you know to to know to to understand what all the different institutions do like the economy and the government and the media and the educational systems and all of them and to know how we fit into them and how we're socialized through them and how they are all, you know, to sort of use a sort of a Marxian term, a base and superstructure, you know, those, the culture and the institutions are, you know, you know, for the most part, mirror images of the interests of the base, which is the economy and the economists. And so if this is what we're being fed, then we are not, seeing the whole picture where it, you know, it's almost as bad as, you know, well, any totalitarian state where they don't allow any dissenting information. They don't allow, you know, it's, it's either you're a consumer and you are obedient and pliant and um, compliant and, um, or you're something wrong with you and you are going to be a social outcast. So yeah, for for liberal arts education, which is why we have general education as the precursor to majoring in your degree later, is so that you can become an intelligent, intelligible person who can have a conversation about every different aspect of the world that you live in. I mean, we, we're living in this world. It's not like we're studying rocks. We're studying ourselves, you know? So if you can't talk intelligibly about the yourself and how you're shaped and the world you live in and how it shapes you, then you're at a real deficit, I think. And yet you mentioned the silo effect on every college and university campus and the mm-hmm. discouragement to move from my, my silo into somebody else's silo. We have right. become so fragmented and as with every previous civilization, this one rewards the specialists, the people who are good at one mm-hmm. thing, even if that mm-hmm. one thing is tapping numbers on a keyboard until your right. wrist hurts so badly you have to put it in a brace 16 hours a day. <laughs> so so where are we? Where, where is this taking us? What, does, what good does it do for the broadly educated person as opposed to the person who has their their wrist in a brace 20 hours a day. Mm-hmm. What's the big deal? Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, that's what your first two years of university are supposed to give you is a well-rounded view of history and society and politics and you know, psychology and all of that. And, you know, hopefully – you know, hopefully that will remain. I mean, I, if they cut Gen Ed, I'm going to be out in the streets, even if I'm retired. But you know, then then people focus. So, for example, my my daughter, uh, her boyfriend, he's 30 years old, and he got a master's degree from UCLA in computer science. And all he does is what you said: sit around all day, eight nine hours a day, and program. And you know, yes, he went to good universities. Um, and so he can carry on a conversation and he can think critically about the world he's living in, 
But what happens if you funnel people into, for example, people that aren't university bound? What if you funnel them into vocational tech, tech schools, you know? They don't they won't ever have a clue. And and I would say the other thing is that in the siloed system, as as you probably know very well, um, the people in one particular silo will fight like hell to keep another silo from blurring the lines, right? And and I think it's only the really dedicated, curious students who can take those different classes and say, oh, I see how this all fits together. You know, that's kind of what happened to me. And because I, because that's what I set out to do is to figure that out. And I just talked to a woman yesterday who's 30 who's in one of my classes. And, you know, she said, oh, I'm, I'm reading, you know, and she's doing all this extracurricular reading that she stumbled across herself through some of the things that we're looking at. And I, you know, I just really my hat's off to that student because she doesn't have to do that. She wants to do that. And yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I'm, I am grieving. I am grieving the the point and the purpose of higher education, which we've had with us for, for how long? I mean, you know, thousands of years, if you want to take it all the way back. Um, and it's just not the same. It's, it's not the same. And I, w- I, want, I want you to ask me a question that kind of gets back to the last thing that Paul Ehrlich said and for us to talk about this, um, where he says entertainment is not enough. Um, you need to be able to sort of grab them. And the humanities and the arts must recruit more uh, artists and writers, right? And I want to explain that um, and, you know, by the way, those are the areas being cut now. Art, what do they need right. art for, you know, right? Of course, in any so, recession, those are the first things to go. Right, So of it, course. It's not a particular surprise, but please take us down that path. Okay, well, um, there's a quote um, that I wanted to share. It's very short by a dear friend of mine who's an eco-artist. And he says, the highest purpose of art is to ride point on the front line or the edge of social change. Their purpose is to create a field for the never-before-seen to happen. And that's what artists do. You know, they, they, can, they can create dystopian stuff, and we see that are totally at our fill of that. Okay, we know what's going to happen. And, you know, they're grabbing on to that and creating all these dystopian novels and films and things like that. I'm sick of looking at those, even though I know, you know, what's happening with the climate and where we're going. I, I'm completely aware of that. But I feel like, you know, to get back to what Ehrlich was talking about, I mean, he was kind of hopeful, actually. Um, I, I don't have a lot of hope personally myself um, because I've been following the science. So. I don't, but if you had artists and writers and filmmakers and, you know, all of these kinds of people, painters, whatever, painting a picture or creating a story or music, the lyrics that are painting a different picture of the road we could have gone down or some would say the road we could still go down. 
um, in order to save, you know, life on the on the planet. And you painted it out to be, you know, in in numerous ways. And it would depend on the artist, you know, how they wanted to paint it. But something positive where where people would look at it and say, you know, maybe watch the film or whatever and say, you know, oh my gosh, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to put on my running shoes. I'm going to get there. I want to go there. I don't want to be here in this dystopia. I want to go there. And even if I'm, if, if, even if I'm not going to live very long, I'm going to go there. I'm going to live there and I'm going to work there for, for change. You know, I mean, I, I would rather live my life that way. Absolutely. Personally. I think we all would. I think that the, one role for art and artists is to paint a positive future. No matter how long we have left, if we can create a society that is well integrated, that contributes to individuals having broad knowledge and having an understanding of the importance of that holistic life, then what could be better than that? I couldn't agree right. more. Yep. So we need those people. We have a caller. We need we have a yeah, caller, yeah, David yeah, from New Jersey. Okay. You still with us? Yes, I am, Guy. Thank you. Uh, very important discussion. I, uh, I've always thought of liberal arts as learning how to learn. Um, you know, before you're ready to specialize, you need to know how to find the knowledge itself. And education, as we know from its Latin root, means to bring out or to raise up. It's essentially the opposite of indoctrination. It's really, you know, sort of helping an individual liberate themselves mentally and grow. Uh, you know, in the United States, certainly we've financialized education, the disgraceful uh, loan arrangements that uh, that leave the universities off the hook for, uh, you know, for the damage that's done economically to the students. Uh, I think is is really problematic, and I'm wondering if this is a similar. Uh, 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 thing going on in other parts of the world in higher education. Well, Mimi, I can, can answer, I can answer that because, yeah, I, I mean, I, I follow, you know, what's happening in different parts of the world with education, and and I can say, you know, for a fact, and I don't know about some other places, but, um, you know, the the way the Europeans. Um, do higher education for most countries in the EU higher education is free and not only that the tuition is free plus they give you a, a stipend to live on in some countries like you know $1,500 a month or something to pay your rent and 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 in some countries like Germany and uh, in Slovakia I think it is um, and probably a few others they will even take American students and they don't pay tuition either. So I always tell my students, hey, you want to have an interesting experience when you're ready to transfer to a four-year university, go to Europe. Go, and you won't be saddled with these huge loans, you know, because they see it as, they see it as a um, service to the common good because countries, you know, countries that aren't authoritarian – that are much more democratic and open and truthful and, tr and trustful and, and transparent, they want an educated citizenry. They don't want a bunch of dumbed-down people, so they're willing to pay for that. And you see that way true? here when I was a kid. Isn't it true, though? I, I 
it's you know not just anybody can go to school for free. You do have to have a certain grade level. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 That's I under that was one of the things I understood was that I know I remember growing up in Greece and knowing some college age young adults, they were all trying to pass these grades so that they could get into college. Mm-hmm. And of course we do that here too, but that's we worked in New Zealand as well. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't about money, although, you know, it was difficult for the poorer people, of course, but it wasn't about money. You had to meet an uh, educational standard. And, you know, right. what, what you folks were talking about, what's happened to the institutions and, um, in the U.S., the educational institutions. I used to work at one uh, called the um, Auckland, Technical, Auckland Technical Institute, Unitech. And um, Guy and I both know some of the professors there who were tutors, and all of them are frustrated. All of them had their departments gutted. It was just watching a flamethrower be put on a system that worked and being converted into something that didn't. Yeah. Mimi, we have just, just a minute or two left for the show today. Can you tell us mm-hmm. what your future endeavors hold and maybe send <laughs> us off with a positive note, as difficult as that might be? With a positive note. Well, I, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm much more sending people off with, a, with the opposite of that. But um, what am I going to do? Well, I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to, when I retire, if I'm going to write, if I'm going to, who knows, maybe I'll be organizing junior faculty around, you know, and letting them really know what, what they are and what their value is. And because it, 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 it just saddens me so deeply that that respect that respect that academics used once had is slipping away. And, you know, I think pretty soon it's going to be the administrators who dictate to the academics what, what they should be teaching and not teaching, and it's already starting to happen. So um, I, I do think, though, that the students, even in their grief and even in their inability to, to connect the dots, I think they really are hungry for it, you know, and maybe a different platform, maybe a different, I don't know how, how it's going to happen, but um, yeah, I really don't. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't, I I just can't think of anything positive right now because it's just, it's, it's rapidly, rapidly deteriorating and and I'm watching it. And so um, I, I think it's going to take a huge, like a huge cultural change, political change for people to not vote against their own self-interest and to make college education free and to not have student loans anymore. And, you know, I think it's going to take a huge change. And I just personally don't see that coming because, the march of the march of capitalism and the rationalization of society it 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 is powerful it's super powerful and it's super layered and this is just we're looking at one aspect so i'm sorry i can't give you anything better than that that's all right 
you continue to tell us the truth, and that's all we can ask for. Thank you, Mimi Riley, longtime educator, for joining us today. And Kevin, why don't you take us home? Yeah, I'd like to thank you very, very much, Mimi, for your time. You had some incredible insights for us. Uh, thanks for making the time for us. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks to our listeners today and as well, Astra for our theme music. You can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday afternoon of the month at 3 p.m. Eastern. Our next episode is scheduled to hear live on April 6th in the 2021 in the United States. And that's April the 7th, Wednesday in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. We'll be having um, Jim Musser back on board, who's an ocean, uh, Arctic oceanographer. Also continue to follow the Nature Bats last blog, GuyMcPherson.com, for further updates, interviews, and speaking tours. And you can keep up with my work at KevinHester.live. Until the next time, remember the dominant culture is very clever, but in the end... Nature Bats last! Mother Nature, she's gonna